one of the big advantages of startups over bigger competitors is intenser, more intense curiosity about the world. All right, so, so startups are, are really asking questions of, of the data, they're asking questions of their consumers, they're asking questions about the way the world is changing at a much more intense level because it's so much more important to their survival than the big companies are. This is Vlad from The Family for The Families podcast. If you wonder what is The Family, we are like an incubator, but long term. A mix between the fantastic world of incubators and the wonderful world of VCs. You join The Family, we help you until an exit or an IPO. Really, really long term stuff. We take 100 startups per year all across Europe and we help them with anything they might need. We have a big portfolio with cool companies like Algolia, Payfit, Agricool, Hitch, Site, Comet. So if you're a startup, join us. The model is quite easy. We take 5% of equity and you have one year to decide if it's worth it if you want to stay. Otherwise, you leave, you take your 5% back and everybody's happy because we want long-term aligned interests. So... You're doing ads and ads and ads to acquire new customers. Okay, that's cool, that's effective, that works. But you need to realize it's not enough. It's not enough because you need to build a brand. And a brand, it's long-term shots. It's showing that your brand is here, is in the space. Ian Leslie is an author. He wrote about curiosity, about lying. He wrote a lot of articles as well about this new state. Asking the question... Is Don Draper dead? This may seem provocative, but you need to really get the thing that this data obsession won't really help you to build the identity of your startup. You really need to go beyond that. So this will be the main topic of the conversation of this episode between Ian Leslie and Carl Hall, who is a writer at The Family. It's really eye-opening. So try to understand what's going on and make the best decisions according to that for your own startup. Enjoy. Right now, uh, I'm very happy to have Ian Leslie here with us today uh, for this chat. I think it's a good example of sort of how we do try and create value in our community and in that we, we don't, didn't know each other. Uh, and then you published an article last year uh, that gave us the title of our, of our talk today, The Death of Don Draper. And so people at the family started following you on Twitter and then we saw that you were in Paris and reached out and you were kind enough to agree to come here and, and have this event, and we really appreciate it, so thank you for that. Um, Ian, you had a career first in the advertising industry, and now you are a full-time writer. Uh, we'll get into the particulars of how you see the advertising industry and, and how it can be applied in the world of startups a little bit. Uh, but I found out last week also that you are a bit of a poet uh, as you publish what I think we can call uh, an ode to Paris on your Twitter account. And I'll, I'll read it real quickly for those of you who don't know it. Bonjour. Je voudrais deux croissants. Oui, deux. Et aussi, I would like you to assume one of them is for someone else. Merci. Au revoir. And now, the first book that you wrote... 
Which I, again, as a former literary critic, quite frankly, better than most modern poetry that I ever <laughs> dealt with. Uh, but the first book that you wrote after leaving the advertising industry is called Born Liars. Uh, and in light of this poem, was that book really just a first step in a long plan to avoid being judged for your eating habits? Yeah, it all comes back to the croissant. Um, I, 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 so, yeah, it's just to fill you in very quickly on, on, on my strange career. Uh, not that strange, but, but I, I worked in advertising for a long time. Uh, I worked at ad agencies in London and New York. And then in my 30s, I had a kind of um, a premature midlife crisis. Um, and I recommend having a midlife crisis, by the way. I think it's a good thing. You should, you should have one every sort of five, ten years. Um, and in fact, if you're not, I think that's a problem, right? If, you, if, if you're not having a midlife crisis, that is your midlife crisis. Um, and I thought, I don't want to be doing advertising forever. I'm sure some of you <laughs> have had similar kind of career experiences where you think, hopefully sooner than I did, you think, oh, I don't want to be doing this forever. I'm going to try doing something that I, I really, really, really care about. And I really, really cared about writing, um, and I, I knew I was reasonably uh, good at it, but I'd never written professionally um, before, so I, I went freelance and as a, in advertising and, and worked as a consultant, which I still do, but it gave me much more time and much more flexibility to, to write. Um, and since then, I've, yeah, I've published a couple of books and, uh, and I write, you know, I'm established as a, as a journalist, I suppose, so I write for, for the Financial Times and The Economist um, and The New Statesman. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm writing a, a third book at the moment, which is partly why I'm, I'm here, uh, for reasons I won't bore you with, but I'm, ri I'm writing another book at the moment, and, and it, uh, it, I, I had to do it in Paris, obviously. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it does make sense. And so there's a phrase that we repeat a lot with our entrepreneurs here at The Family, uh, because we keep on telling them that they need to talk to their users and that they need to talk to everyone around them about their startup. Uh, and then we have to always lead with a very large caveat, which is, and remember, everybody lies. <laughs> uh, and we say it in, I think, sort of the same way that uh, <clears throat> you found a lot when you were writing Born Liars. Uh, in that people don't lie to us because they want to hurt us or they want to do something bad. In fact, most of the time they lie to us because they don't want to hurt us and they think that this is the easiest way yeah. to do it. Um, but it's somebody who's written an entire book on this topic of why people lie and what the sort of psychological aspects of that are. Uh, what sort of maybe tips could you give to someone who is trying to deal with that fact? I need to get the truth out of people and yet everybody lies. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's true, everybody lies. So I wrote, I wrote the, the, so Born Liars was my first kind of um, book about human behavior, which was kind of the area that I now write about. I take an aspect of human behavior and look at it from many different directions, and I talk to experts, whether they be psychologists or anthropolo anthropologists or, or cultural historians, and, um, and, and try to get to, to the root of it. And the thing about lying is that although we all say that other people lie and, and that lying is a terrible thing and that we only do it occasionally, the more you look at it and the more you study it, the more you realize um, that, that, yeah, people do it all the time, right? It's, it's woven into the very essence of our lives, in fact, of our, of our DNA. Um, and so, uh, the, yeah, to answer your question, um, 
to 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 yeah to accept that people are lying to you because um, partly because they want to please you or they want to put on a, a good face, which is a kind of reasonable thing to do. They're not necessarily doing it maliciously or, or in quotes, dishonestly, even though it's li literally dishonest. Um, I think you just have to be very good at listening. And being very good at listening is actually a, a, a hard skill. Um, and it's not something that, that comes naturally to us, uh, although we assume it does. I think it's something that you have to practice and, and think about. Um, and one of the, so it's just, you, there's a lot to say there, but, but one of the things I would say is when you're listening to somebody um, talk to you or, or pitch to you or present to you, whatever it is, or somebody that works for you, um, try and don't, don't jump in with a question too soon. <laughs> um, now you're, you're shutting up now. <laughs> yeah. um, because, actually, because actually we have an instinct to either jump in with a question or to correct somebody to say no 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 that's wrong you've got that wrong e even when you feel that urge in yourself to say what well, i need to ask this question or uh, i need to tell this person that, that they're wrong just hold back a minute right at some point you may have to do that but the more you hold back the more you defer that and the more you just say okay if i'm understanding you correctly is this what you're saying you'll get a lot more the data that you get from them will be a lot richer Right, so so just put off that moment where you're where you're kind of pushing them back uh, or asking them a question because you you can take them off in a different direction. Just let them talk, and if they stop talking, try and pull them out again. And the more they talk, the richer the data will get, and actually your understanding at the end of what they've been saying will be very different to your understanding, you know, of 25% of the way through. Um, so that would be my quick answer to that. Yeah, I, and I, I think you're right to point out the fact that it is sort of something that we have to actively repress in ourselves a little bit because it is we, we do sort of have this instinct to uh, not to wait uh, we're almost waiting or not waiting for our turn in the conversation as opposed to yeah, yeah listening to to what they're really trying to say yeah. and how they're saying it and and, exactly. and those tells yeah uh, and then your second book curious takes up more the idea of education uh, which is again one of our pillars here and so we're we're and, and, and I have to admit also we're, we're big uh, proponents of the idea of learn how to learn, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you look at this dichotomy, right, between uh, learning facts, uh, what we learn in school, and then this push towards an idea of, well, the most important thing is to learn how to learn. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of your perspective on, on education in the 21st century and what, what we should be pushing towards? Um, wow. It's yeah, a, it's, it's a big question. question. <laughs> um, okay, let me say, I'll, I'll say a couple of things about, about, about this book. So, so, so this book was about, yeah, it's about, as you say, it's about the, the trait of curiosity and why it's important to be curious in the 21st century, uh, especially in the, the way the, the, the economy and society is changing. We have access to all this information, so, so there's more equal access to information than there ever has been in, in history. Um, but the gap between people who are really curious about exploring that information and, and those who are not is growing, right? So there's a, I call it a curiosity divide between the curious and the incurious. That's actually growing. So you want to be on the right side of that. And if you want to be on the right side of that, you have to really cultivate it. You have to work at it. So the kind of the, the essence of the, the, the story of the book is that curiosity is not this this gift that just sort of keeps giving and you're you know, constantly curious throughout your life. 
you know, that's not true. You actually don't need to be curious after a certain age because you can learn a set of habits and routines that enable you to survive and get through life and have a perfectly nice time. Now, I think if you stop being curious because of that, you'll become a more boring and less interesting person and probably won't be as successful. But you, you, that can happen to all of us. And so we have to work hard as we get older at staying curious, okay? So curiosity is like a muscle that we have to exercise in order to keep it, to keep it fit. Um, so on, quickly on the education thing, it's a huge subject and I, we can't kind of cover it, but there's been, it's quite fashionable these days, especially if you, if you watch TED Talks, um, to say, oh, we're teaching the wrong thing in schools, we shouldn't be teaching facts and knowledge and information and so on, because they can do that on Google. We should just be teaching creativity and, and critical thinking and so on. Um, and I think that, and this is what I argue in the, one of the things I argue in the book is that that's totally, that's the wrong way round. That actually, there's no such thing as creativity and, and critical thinking unless you, you know stuff, right? The, 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 the really kind of, the people who really achieve things in life, who the people who are truly innovative and creative and interesting are people who put a lot of hard work into acquiring knowledge. And only then do they start to make unusual connections between the different bits of knowledge um, in, in their brain. Um, and if you don't know anything about a subject, if you don't have any knowledge, you just don't get curious about it, right? So, so you need to be in this happy, virtuous circle where the more you learn, the more you want to learn. And the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And, and that, that feeling of, I don't know, and I really, really, really want to know, is what makes you curious and, and keeps you, right? So, so uh, you know, my, my hunger to kind of basically read everything <laughs> is driven from this absolute fury and rage that I don't know everything in the world, and that's an outrage. Um, and that just keeps, keeps me going. Um, but I need the, the fuel of facts and information and knowledge to, to keep that hunger alive. Because, as I say, the more I learn, the, the more I realize I don't know. And I think that applies in, in schools as well, right? So, Kids really do need to be taught facts and knowledge and, and all that stuff, um, but they need to be taught it in a way that makes them aware that this, isn't, this might be enough to get you through, through the exam, but if you, if you stay here, you're going to be uh, impoverished. Um, so you, we need to frame it in a way that says this is the beginning of a journey, it's not the end of one, right? So we're helping you to ask better questions, not just to give you answers. And I, I, yeah, I think that the, there was sort of a big, Shift. My, my personal idea on it is that the shift that took place in the last 20 to 30 years, particularly with the internet, is that all of a sudden we went to a world where we cannot know everything, right? And, and before we kind of thought that we could, or at least to a reasonable extent. Yeah. And it's dangerous. You know, if you, if you outsource your curiosity to Google, it's just another way that, that, that you can become incurious. Right. You, can, you, could, you, you could stop thinking that I need to learn because I can always look it up on Google. And over time, you know, your, your mind, your intellectual capability, your critical thinking will deteriorate um, because you've, you've basically said, uh, Google and Wikipedia can look after my curiosity. So whenever I need the answer to something, I'll just look up the answer back. Um, actually, Google and Wikipedia and the rest of the internet are hugely powerful tools for you to keep your curiosity alive. That they're not, they're not just sources of answers for you to kind of shut the question down.
Anyway, that's a, that's a longer conversation. <laughs> All right, but I think, and, and I think you're right that the, 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 the issue that I would say is that the TED Talks became very easy because we had sort of a system that for too long held on to this idea of, well, uh, from 5 to 18, we're going to give you the stuff to memorize, and people started to see a sort of a break there. But uh, obviously, yes, if we, if, we, if we, again, as you say, offload our entire sense of curiosity to, to a tool, well, all of a sudden you don't have it anymore, and, and, yeah. and it is a muscle. Right, we we know that we know that from medical research in terms of what happens as we age. We know that from how we see children's brains developing. There's there's definitely it's absolutely yeah. It it, it the the people who are most curious that their their brains will it's literally a defense against dementia. By the way, you know against Alzheimer's. Um, uh, it, it's intellectual curiosity is, is much more important than, than other factors or, you know, a, as important as nutrition, but much more important than, say, intelligence in terms of staving off um, Alzheimer's and so on. So you've got to keep working at it. Just to quickly talk about business as well and curiosity. Um, in a way, you can think about it in, in, in the same way. Um, businesses, as they grow, can easily become incurious. Again, because they have worked out a set of habits and routines and, and uh, you know, things that we, we think we know about the world that enable them to survive and succeed and make money. And they make money for a few years. They, they get incurious about... They, they stop being curious about consumers. They stop being curious about the way that technology is changing. They stop being curious about the way the world is changing. And then, boom, before you know it, a startup comes and you know and 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 disrupts and throws. <laughs> so um, the big advantage, one of the big advantages of startups over bigger competitors is intenser, curi more intense curiosity about the world. All right. So so startups are are really asking questions of of the data. They're asking questions of their consumers. They're asking questions about the way the world is changing at a much more intense level because it's so much more important to their survival than the big companies are. Um, and, and you've got to be careful, you know, as of when you grow, not to lose that, that, that curiosity. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's get a little bit deeper into the advertising world, uh, which we put as the basis of this, of this event. Uh, and look at your article in the New State in the New Statesman, The Death of Don Draper. Uh, you kick off that article with a bit of a pushback against Scott Galloway, who's become a real touchstone uh, in the tech industry conversation around advertising in the last few years. Uh, but for those of us in the audience who haven't read it necessarily, uh, can you give us your idea on the state of advertising today, 15 years now, into a world that is being increasingly eaten by Facebook and Google, quite specifically, uh, in terms of advertising? Yeah. Um <laughs> so, this is one of those situations where the advertising industry um, has overcorrected its its course. I think. Okay. So, so if you looked back, um, say, fifteen, twenty years ago, um, you would see that. Uh, and, and for the most part, I'm going to be talking about slightly bigger businesses and brands than, than some of the ones you're involved in. But I, I think some of the lessons will translate. And also, you're going to be in these businesses at some point, hopefully. Um, so if you look back 15, 20 years ago, you would say that uh, roughly 80% of, of budgets were, were spent on kind of 
brand and, and, and the kind of image of the brand, and only kind of 20% were spent on, on performance metrics. So, you know, this kind of old idea of, of the purchase funnel um, where consumers kind of come in at the top because they've heard about your brand, they get more interested in it, so they do some kind of reading around, do some research, they get to know the brand, and then at the bottom they convert and they, 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 they make the purchase. So most of the, the, the spending, or a huge proportion of the spending was spent at the top on kind of brand awareness and brand fame and brand image and so on, and relatively little at the bottom, and the internet has kind of flipped that around. So, so huge amounts of money got moved out of um, broadcast awareness generating media and into much more uh, direct kind of conversion media because of the rise of, of um, uh, Google and, and then Facebook and, and, and so on. So that now kind of 80% of the budgets are spent on the last click on, on, on the on a conversion um, at the bottom of the, 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 the purchase funnel. And Whilst some of that correction was necessary because it's true that the, the ad industry was uh, too inefficient and, uh, and there was too much kind of money being, being spent without people really knowing why and that led to all sorts of mistakes. Um, I think we're now in a position where we've, we've got the balance, we've, we've gone too far the other way um, and we're underestimating the value of brand overestimating the value of spending money at the, 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 the kind of conversion end uh, of the funnel. So we put a huge amount of emphasis on uh, cost per acquisition um, metrics, you know, acquiring customers without thinking very hard enough about the fact that it's more expensive, much more expensive to acquire those customers if you don't have a strong brand. All right, so, so brands that do have trust and um, uh, are culturally meaningful and culturally famous and people have heard of them, they find it much easier and cheaper to acquire customers than, than those that don't, right? So that would imply, actually, you still really need to be spending and investing and thinking about that level, that, that top level of, of brand awareness, <clears throat> because in the long run, it makes you much more efficient at, at acquiring and, and converting customers. And the reason that we've become so obsessed with this kind of bottom level of the, of the funnel is because suddenly we have all this data, right? And, and when, when, you, when something about human beings is so stupid, right? So, so when we can measure something, we suddenly assume that's the important thing that we should be measuring. There is no correlation between those two things, right? Because you can measure something, that doesn't make, make it important. It doesn't make it less important, more important. It has no effect on its importance. It just means you can measure it. But we have this kind of, you see this again and again, you see it in, in, in military strategy, you, you know, you see it in business, you see it in, in marketing, which is when we get lots of data around a certain area, we suddenly think, oh, well, that's the really important thing then, because we have the data. And so the reason we've kind of overcorrected and we're now kind of throwing all our money at, the, at this kind of the, the, the last click, the kind of bottom end of the funnel, is that we have huge amounts of, of data there. We still don't have very good data on the top end of the funnel because it's really, 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 really hard to measure, quite frankly, because it, it's an incredibly complex uh, question of, of uh, with the cultural meaning of a brand. You know, I don't know. If, you, can, you can measure it, but it's very, the, the measurements are not very good. But it doesn't mean it's not important. So we've kind of confused, you know, our sense of what we can measure with a sense of 
what's important. And that's that's the kind of you know underlying story of the. So in the in the piece in the in the New Statesman, I I talk about a few of the things that you can't do with direct one-to-one targeted marketing. So, so first of all, you know, I think targeting is just overrated, right? It is important, but it's not as important as everyone says it is. It's not as important as Facebook wants you to think it is. Um, I think um, that having a, a kind of broader meaning, that your brand having some sort of broader awareness and fame is... is, is uh, much more important than, than, than Facebook realizes. So, so I'll, I'll, can I, do you mind if I just keep talking? I'm afraid I'm sort of on a long rant now. Um, but I, and I'll give a couple of reasons for that. One is that if you think everything is about one-to-one marketing, it's because you have this model in your head that marketing is about communication. It's, it's about an exchange of information. It's us, the business, telling that customer about this brand, and if we just give them enough information, then they'll buy our, our, our brand. Well, yes and no. I mean, yeah, bra- people do want some information about, about um, the brands they buy, but they buy brands on the basis of things other than information. They buy brands, uh, for instance, um, because brands send cultural signals, um, and the way that they, the brand talks to you sends a signal as much as what it says. Um, so Rory Sutherland, who's from at, at Ogilvy, you know, is, is very good on, on this topic. And one of the things, he, he, the analogy he gives is, um, you know, wh- why don't people invite their friends to, to a wedding by email? Right? It's the same information. Why, why, why not just send your, your wedding invitation out on, on an email saying we're going to meet at this, po- at this place at, at this time? Um, it's because the, the media, the method of communication isn't, is not sending the right signal about how much you care and how, much important, you know, how important this thing is. Um, and you, you, you see that in, in you know, the, the purest form of signaling in the advertising industry are, are perfume ads, where you know, there's zero information. Um, the, the, or the important information that people are getting is how much a, a perfume brand is willing to spend on its perfume ad. <laughs> right? um, so you, you can't do that in a, in a kind of, uh, with one of those, you know, a little ad on a, on, on a Facebook page, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have, you, you can't send those kind of powerful cultural signals. And another thing I talk about in the, um, in the New Statesman piece is the importance of um, common knowledge, right? So common knowledge is, is just a really interesting concept. It's, it's, it's not the same as um, everybody knowing something. It's, it means, and it comes, it's a concept from sociology, and you can kind of read up about it and look at it. But what it means is, is the importance of us people knowing that other people know about this thing. Right? So um, it's important not just for me to know that Nike is uh, a high-performance footwear. What's really important from Nike's point of view is for me to know that you know that Nike is high-performance footwear and for you to know that I know. Right? Because it's only then that it becomes a powerful cultural signal. So say, or you think about a, a, a beer brand. If, if um, uh, Michelob, I don't know, whatever, beer brand had been emailing me and, and telling me all about its, why its beer was so excellent, 
and why it was such a kind of authentic or emotionally kind of resonant brand, then, okay, I might say, well, okay, if I bother to read your email, <laughs> which I probably won't, um, then I might say, okay, yeah, I, that's fine. But when I'm standing in a bar and I'm thinking about ordering uh, a beer, and I want to buy a beer that I will feel confident that the people around me will go, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good choice of beer, or at least that they won't go, oh, my God, I can't believe he bought that, um, then that one-to-one -one communication is irrelevant. It doesn't help with that at all. What helps is that I, I know that there are ads out there, whether they are on posters or in magazines or, or you know, on TV or on the internet, where they are. But the important thing is that I know that other people can see those ads. And in a world where you're talking about micro, because then I know that other people have the same idea of what this brand's cultural meaning is as, as I do. And that makes me much more liable to go, okay, I'll buy this brand because everyone knows what a Michelob beer, the choice of Michelob beer um, means. And again, you can't do that with one-to-one -one kind of micro -time. You can't do that with, with search ads, you know, um, because we're, we're living in, these, in our private filter bubbles. So you don't, you don't get that kind of um, public resonance. Um, one of the uh, example I talk about in the piece is, um, uh, so uh, when Christie's, the auction house, uh, were organizing the auction of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, last painting that wasn't already owned, um, Salvatore Mundi. Um, this is a couple of years ago now. They invested in a big marketing campaign, right, about the painting. Um, so this painting is going to be sold to, what, like, to, to billionaires, right? There's only a handful of people in the world that, that the, the target audience for this auction was really, you know, 15, 20 people. Um, and Christie's knew all of them. So if you want, like, one-to-one -one brand marketing, um, then Christie's know how to do that because they know where all these guys live and they go around to their apartments and they talk to them. So why are they spending quite a series of, they hired Droger 5 to, to, to do this campaign. Why are they spending this money uh, marketing, you know, spending, advertising um, this, this painting? Well, the truth is we value things more highly when we know that other people value them. This is something that's very... This is very kind of deep in, in human nature, right? We don't just value things because we have a kind of individual assessment of what the value is. When we see other people looking at them, so when I know that you know, or when I see you looking at the same thing I'm looking at, suddenly it acquires resonance and significance and meaning to me. So it was important, Christie's judged it was important um, uh, to those billionaires that the whole world was looking at this painting and the whole world knew how uh, important it was, and the whole world was in love with it. And that raised the value of, of the painting uh, significantly. So you might say, well, that's just billionaires, they're obsessed by, by status. No, it's absolutely a facet of human nature. Um, we, we value things more highly. We're always looking to see where other people are looking, right? And, and, and so that's why the kind of public media and public branding is, is so important. And just, I, I just have one more thing about this, because like, my, my favorite example of, uh, my favorite evidence for that, for that 
proposition. This, by the way, is why people sit around t in round tables and have done in, you know, for, for thousands and thousands of years, and why you know, hunter-gatherers, they gather around in a circle. It's not so that everybody can see the thing, the person or the thing in the middle, it's so that everybody can see where everybody is looking, right? Um, but my, my, my favorite um, sort of uh, uh, evidence for this is that the, 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 the design of our eyes. Um, so one of the things that distinguishes our eyes from the eyes of other primates, the great apes and so on, um, is that there's a greater contrast between the iris and, and the white of our eye. Right, so the, the, the iris stands out, it's much more visible from, from a distance. Why would that be? Uh, it's, it's not, it doesn't help us see better. <laughs> it's so that we can see what other people, we can see what the other guy's looking at. You know, because, because uh, early humans grew up in bigger groups than those other primates, so they had to develop higher social intelligence. And a key part of social intelligence is seeing what others are seeing. And I fear that a lot of the marketing industry has not got very high social intelligence. <laughs> well, and that's a, I, because I think I, I agree with most of, of what you're saying. And I wonder if there isn't a part of it that was just, yeah, the advertising industry started to panic and actually didn't realize that they needed to push back a bit on, say, larger brands and recognize that there are multiple tiers, actually, of, of brand building and, and advertising possible, right? So one of the reasons why we, working with startups, are so in favor of something like Facebook is because it gave access to targeting that isn't as good as they would like us to think, but it's still way better than anything that we had before, yeah, right? Absolutely, yeah. and, and, and so for a startup, you can say, well, I want to touch 100 people with this profile, and you can get that pretty good and see if there's any response, right? Yeah. It, but that is much I different. I think that's the best aspect of Facebook, that it has to a certain extent, equalize the playing field. Now, it, I, I understand that. So my, my, my point is not you know, anti-Facebook. My point is not don't do, don't, don't do Facebook. Um, but my point is more that... that as you grow, and I think this is something you have to kind of understand right from the beginning, because it's as important to your internal culture as it is to your external brand, you know, be aware of the importance of um, salience, cultural resonance, trust, these things that are difficult to measure. Just be aware of the importance of the, these, these perceptions of your brand in the culture, you know, even just amongst you, the kind of the, the, the definition of your audience. Um, be aware that this is not just a question of you kind of talking one-to-one. -one. The ideal situation for you is not kind of, oh, I wish I could meet every customer and tell them about this thing. Well, you, that would be good, but it's not the... the you, you also have to kind of create a, a, something, a, a meaningful brand, right? Which, and that you can't just do that with, with kind of one-to-one -one targeted and, advertising. And you talk a little bit about it in terms of uh, visual and emotional associations. Uh, so if you were going to give advice to someone uh, who's trying to think about how their startup, how their business, whatever size it might be, is going to uh, develop those visual and emotional associations? What would be maybe the main questions or the main things that they should be uh, thinking about as they go through that process? Yeah, so, so that's right. So 
what, what you're trying to do in, in marketing ultimately uh, over the long term is, is, is not just sell to people, because actually often if you try to sell to people directly, it, it, it backfires, right? As, 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 you know, as happens when you try to do many things directly, it back, backfires. What you're trying to do is create memories of your brand, uh, create enduring memories, memories of, of your brand, um, which they can then trigger at the point of purchase. Right, which you or you can trigger, but can be triggered at the point of, of purchase. But that's the when I'm talking about you know brand versus performance, and we spent too long on the performance, and and now you know, and we're not kind of looking at the brand. What I'm talking about is we we we're not investing enough in creating memories in people's minds, which can then be triggered when we get to the 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 last click. Um, and when you have those memories, you know, when you've installed a bit of real your real estate. Uh, in, in, in the consumers' minds, um, suddenly your cost per, per acquisition, uh, you know, will will go down. So, how do you create people memories in people's minds? Well, well, you know, there's a huge literature on, on psychology and how to how to make people remember things. And one of the kind of you know most consistent, powerful things is repetition. Right? You just repeat the same thing um, over and over again. Um, there's a huge tendency in, in, in uh, marketing and in business in general to, to say, oh, well, let's, let's, try, let's try something new, right? right? Which is good because you need to be creative. But sometimes in marketing and branding, it can, it, can, it can go wrong because what you really should be doing is building and repeating over time. Like all good things in life, branding is compound, right? The, the best things in life are compound, right? But you save money at a regular rate for a long time and, and eventually the, the curve goes like this. Um, you become friends with somebody at a very young age and, and, and you get annoyed with them for years and years and years and then when you're older suddenly you're so glad that you... Because it's, it's the same thing, right? So the, all, all kind of interesting curves are compound curves and the same true of true is marketing. You know, if you keep investing consistently in the same, in the same things, at some point they'll go boom. Um, and and more specifically, yeah. So we want to talk about associations. We, you know, a few concrete, specific things. Um, we might not have worked it out yet, but when you do work it out and you've got a pretty good one, value it very highly. Your brand name, um, your, your logo, um, the, the the colours you use um, uh, might be um, there. Might be a sort of an advertising property. You know, whether it's a little animal or whatever it is, or a tagline. But, you know, but once you've got something, yeah, exactly. So, so once you've got a few things that, that are seem to be seem to be working, you should have a bias towards keeping them. That's what I'm saying, right? You, you should have a. They're not always going to be the right thing. It might might be a good idea to change them, but you should have an inbuilt bias towards keeping them because you've got to be thinking about the 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 compound value that you're building um, over time. And because the more you repeat things, the more people are going to remember them. So, so essentially, invest the the time and effort at the beginning to find that real, those things that really work, as opposed to sort of yeah, saying, well put, yeah. because that's also a problem, I think a lot of times founders, when you have a limited amount of time, you sort of say, oh, well, uh, this is good enough for right now. And so yeah. you use that for a little while and then we'll change it and for, and which is viable on a certain level, but what you're saying is it's also worth kind of. It's worth nailing it. But then also, you know, if it's good enough right now, it actually might be good enough forever. You know, it, because actually the more you invest... In, I was thinking about this the other day. I, I'm a big um, Beatles fan. And, you know, 
the Beatles is a terrible fucking brand name. It's really awful. It's like this really terrible pun because it was like they really they really liked Holly, uh, Buddy Holly, and the crickets. So they were like, well, maybe we could have an insect. That is a terrible story. Right, but, but we'll, we'll we'll put an A in it. It's because it, in English it's B E E T L E S. But we'll put an A in it because we're a beat band, and we'll call ourselves the Beatles. Like you know, if I'd been advising them, <laughs> don't be so fucking stupid. That's the most terrible brand name I've ever heard, and it is a terrible brand name. But didn't really matter much in the end, did it? <laughs> so so it could be that you do come across something that's just good enough, and you just keep going with it, and eventually it compounds into this amazing thing. Thank you for coming out. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. How was it? Learn new stuff? Hope you enjoyed it, because we did. Ian has a brilliant mind, and it's always cool to be in touch with people like him. This episode is just one amongst a lot. We do episodes about great entrepreneurs, about entrepreneurial topics like learning, fundraising, finding your co-founders, creating a cool team. So please, check the other ones, and also give us a small rate, send us comments about the podcast for us to understand if you like it or not. We are always open to new feedback, because feedback is life. Also check our YouTube channel, Startup Food, check our Medium, articles, we write a lot, we do a lot of content, and our website is always here, thefamily.co, if you want to apply to the family and join us to build the next giant tech companies Europe desperately needs.